First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28. All right, now, you've, uh, you've seen this hundreds of times. What takes place is the coach gives the quarterback the signal for the play. He actually tells them, this is the play, I want you to run. Now, there might be several people, they're decoys, and they're giving all these different signals to confuse the other side, so they're not exactly sure what the play is being called, but there is crystal clear in the mind of the quarterback. He then actually takes that play, and you've seen this, right? i got football players here. You guys do this. You run in there. You, your quarterback calls the play. He's got all the guys assembled in the huddle, and he tells them what it is. Now, if he discovers that somebody's bell got rung in the last play and he's not actually sure what his middle name is, he actually tells them, you just block here, okay, or you run this route, okay? He tells them, he makes sure that he got the play, and then they break the huddle, and they get up to the line, and lo and behold, there's 11 people on defense that are determined to blow up that play. You know, it would be great if they weren't there. You could just kind of do what you're supposed to do. But you got 11 others. you got defense that is determined to destroy whatever play that you called in the huddle. And so that is what they do when you play football. Critical to the, to the play being successful are two things. you got to know what the play is. And second of all, you have to execute it. If there is a breakdown on knowledge of the play or the execution, the play completely falls apart. And you look bad, and the defense, like, jumps all over you, okay? That's what happens in football. Let me tell you, the same is true in our faith. God has actually called the play that his people are to execute. In fact, Jesus, after his resurrection, he made it crystal clear, this is what I want you to be doing until I return. I'm going away, I'm going to give you the power of my spirit, but this is what I want you to do, it's the play. Does anybody know what it might be? That's what I thought. We are completely like, ah, the play? You mean I'm in the game? Yeah, let me tell you, if you are a Christian, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are out on the field, if you are alive and breathing today, you are on the line and you are to be executing this play. You've got to know what it is. And you have to execute it. And so what is the play that God has called? What exactly are we supposed to do? If there's any question, let me have you just look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And this is it. Listen to Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, Listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I am the absolute supreme one. All authority has been given to me. I have the ability to empower you and to call you to obey, to do what I've asked. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to, verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ. Disciple-making mission has a threefold emphasis. First, I want to, you to establish people's identity in me. And that's when he says, go therefore and baptize. That idea, when you're baptized, you literally are identified with the person of Jesus Christ, his message, and his mission. And so he says, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go therefore, and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Single name, 
but yet you have the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, plural. He says, I want people to completely identify with the triune God. And so when we are baptized, we literally identify with him. And this is the ongoing practice of the Christian. We keep going back to our identity in Jesus Christ. That the fact that he has risen from the grave, that he's conquered sin, that yes, we're miserable sinners, but we have an amazing Savior. We establish people's identity in Christ, that we are dead to sin and alive to God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But the second aspect of Christ's uh, disciple-making mission is that we are to be developing people's maturity in Christ. He says, I want you to make disciples, and I want you to teach them to observe. That literally means to heed, to follow through everything, notice what it says, all that I commanded you. I want them to become fully mature. And so Jesus says, my mission is to not only establish people to have their identity in me, but I want them fully mature in the relationship with me. And the third aspect is, I want you to go global with this. I want you to go global with my mission. And when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we've walked all the way through this. The Gospel of Matthew for 2,000 years has been kind of like the discipleship masterpiece. The early church studied this book because this book shows you what it looks like for Jesus to take people, to bring them to maturity in himself, and send them out into the world. And the, th- the theme of the book is this, how to know Christ the King as Lord of your life. And why is that so critically important? Because if we're going to follow what Jesus has to say, we have to be convinced of his deity and we have to be compelled by his mission. We have to understand that he's Lord. And when we do, we will do as he says. And that is that is essentially important because of this reason is that people are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. Now, when you talk about a disciple, a disciple literally means to be a learner, someone who is taught by another. Another word that you could put in there is like an apprentice, okay? It wasn't merely that they just believed something, but they actually, they not only believed, but they came to a place where they were actually convinced and they were compelled to do as the master had called. And so that's what Jesus says, I want you to go therefore because I am the Lord of the universe and I want you to make disciples. Making disciples has the idea that you bring people to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And he says, I want you to go about this, this mission until I come. See what he says in verse 20? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, I, I says, I'm going to be with you. It actually, the gospel of Matthew be, ends where it begins. Remember, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus at the end says, I am going to be with you always. In fact, his Holy Spirit is going to reside in the lives of his people so that we will be able to fulfill the mission, the mission of bringing people to maturity in Christ that he has called us to do. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to be a break between my first coming and my second. But until I come back, this is what I want you to do. And it's very interesting. You and I, on our own, we can't do this. And so that is why I said, I'm with you. And this is how we live the Christian life. We live it spiritually empowered. 
And so when you come to anything that you're called to do, you ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me the strength to do this? You love these people more than I do. You, you want to see these people brought to maturity and development more than I do. God, help me. Give me the thoughts, the words. Give me the motivation to be involved. Lord, would you do your work through me? Like a hand in a glove, God, would you perform your work? And so when Jesus says, make disciples, and that is the only command in the Great Commission, going, baptizing, okay, teaching, these are participles, little I-N-G words. The only command of the Great Commission is to go and to make disciples disciples. So here is the the question. What in the world does it mean to make disciples? When Jesus said, make disciples, what did the apostles think? And it's very likely that there were like the 500 others from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that were gathered when he gives this great commission. When Jesus says, I want you to make disciples, what did they think? Do you think that they just like... I have, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. What? A new concept? Did you think that they thought like, well, you know, I guess we just have to make it up as we go. Or I, I think Jesus means that we just try to convince people that he's God. Or we stick them in a Sunday school class. That's, you make disciples, right? You, if you're going to make disciples, I guess you just put them in class or get them to attend a church. Did they understand what Jesus meant when he said, make disciples? How many of you think, they, it was crystal clear in their mind what they were supposed to do. How many of you think they had no idea? Like, whoa, we need further revelation. Uh, we, okay, let me tell you. They knew exactly what they were to do. They were to do what Jesus did with them. They weren't like, oh, Jesus, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Whoa, 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 wait, wait. No, they understood completely. They were to do what Jesus did with them. They understood that Jesus had brought them to a place where they were absolutely convinced of his deity. They were committed to his ways. They were actually becoming mature in their relationship with Christ. They understood that Jesus was calling them to do the exact same thing. You see, disciple making is a mission to maturity. It is a mission to bring people to maturity in their relationship with Christ. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. You see, when a student becomes like his teacher, they own it. the teacher's values, they're committed to their mission, they find their character, they, they understand the teacher, they emulate and model his ways. And so this is what we're to do. If you are a Christian here today, this is what Jesus expects you to be doing and he empowers you to be doing. If you are a parent, you absolutely have to be doing this. If you're a teacher or a professor and you really want to influence people for Jesus Christ, the pattern that Jesus followed, you've got to own. If you are a spiritual leader in any capacity, whether you're investing your lives in the lives of young people or older people, Bible study leader, uh, teaching in some capacity, this is what you must be doing. So how do we do this? How do you make disciples like Jesus did? You've ever seen a football game where the commentator says, like, obviously they're not on the same page. You ever seen that? And you see the play, like, 
the, the lineman actually blocked the wrong way or the receiver runs the wrong route or the quarterback, he throws it deep and the person ran short. And they're like, man, they are not on the same play. They're not on the same page. For Christians, if we don't know how to do this, it is going to be blatantly clear we're not on the same page. We, we don't even know, really know the play. And we're certainly not executing. So how do you do this? Let me just show you six characteristics of Jesus' strategy of developing disciples. You know, when you start reading through the Gospels, I remember as a new Christian, you'd read it, and it, it looked like they're just like a random set of events, and then Jesus gives a message, and he has these principles. Here we go with a parable. And it looks rather random. But in actuality, there was a pattern. It was Jesus' strategy of actually how to develop. And when I point this out to you, you're going to see that there was actually intentionality in everything Jesus did. And the first characteristic that you have to have if you're going to make disciples like Jesus did is that you have to be connecting with people. You have to engage them. You have to be around them. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, like in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he began teaching in the synagogues. Jesus, a little bit over 30 years old, he starts engaging people. He goes and starts teaching in the synagogues. He's interfacing with other people. But not only that, he's going into people's homes. He obviously is going fishing. All right. There's probably some people that are very encouraged by that. He's in their boats. He knows people. He's engaging them. And that's what you and I have to do. If we're going to make disciples like Jesus did, guess what? You've got to connect with people. You've got to put yourself in a situation where you show an interest in their life, their family, their calling. And let me tell you something you have to have. You absolutely have to have the ability to ask good questions, to show an interest in another person. It is really hard to get to know someone if you never ask them a question. Otherwise, you stay pretty superficial. You use another little football deal that we call the stiff arm, right, where you just keep people at a distance, right? I don't want to get too close to you, and you certainly aren't going to get too close to me. Well, if that is your approach to life, you're kind of stiff-arming as you go through, guess what? You will never be involved in Christ's disciple-making mission because you have to engage. You have to know people. Now, let me just tell you that Jesus developed his disciples with a strategy and a tradition that the Jewish rabbis had been following for centuries. And I want to give you a little bit of the history because once I do, you're going to see like, wow, Jesus was following a pattern that was well known in their culture. And this, and this let me give you this a brief lesson. Now, a rabbi, a rabbi means teacher, okay? And so what rabbis would do, they would, they were, some of them were like in Jerusalem and they would teach around the temple. People would come and listen to them. But many of them were itinerant. That means that they kind of moved from place to place. They would go around and they would offer messages. They would teach the law, the Torah. They would explain different scriptures. They would show how the scriptures apply to their life. And if people liked what they were saying, they were encouraged. They were growing spiritually. They gave them funds. And that is kind of how they lived. Okay. And so that is exactly what Jesus is doing. As a rabbi, he goes and he starts teaching. He starts teaching in their synagogues. He starts teaching at their seashores. He starts engaging them in the marketplace. He is teaching. But a a rabbi as a preacher, that really wasn't his primary ministry. The most important thing, his most important contribution, was not that he taught, but that he actually developed his students his teachers, his students, his disciples. And so the second aspect, if you and I are going to make disciples like Jesus did, is that you have to call individuals 
to yourself. And that's what Jesus is. He's calling individuals to himself. Rabbis would do this. They actually handpicked those who would be kind of part of his traveling school. And people wanted to travel with a rabbi. Because this meant that you were going to get some critical investment for a season of time. If you were a wealthy family, you would pay a lot of money. You would do everything you could to try to get your kid with, like, some top-notch rabbis, okay? So, like, for instance, remember the Apostle Paul? He oftentimes would throw out that he had been trained under Gamaliel. Do you remember that? He actually said, hey, I was a student of Gamaliel. Well, not, why would he do that? When he threw out Gamaliel's name, that was like saying, I went to Harvard or I went to the University of Oregon, which is the Harvard of the Northwest. (laughs) Or I went to Baylor or put your school in. I went to McLennan Community College, whatever. That is that is saying I studied under one of the very best. And so Jesus, on the other hand, though, he did things a little differently. You, you apparently, apparent with rabbis, you would approach them and say, may I follow you with the idea that I would be able to live in a close connection, close community with you. Jesus did it very differently. He picked the ones who would follow him. And what, he, what the phrase was, was this. When a rabbi was going to actually allow someone to follow him, to study with him, he would say, follow me. And they immediately knew that they were going to drop whatever they had been doing. And for a season of their life, it's going to be probably several years, they were going to travel with this rabbi. They were going to live with him. They were going to be what we could call like under a rabbinic contract. This wasn't something they signed. There was no form. But it was understood you were going to drop everything else and you were going to be dedicated to learn everything you could about this rabbi. You were going to learn what he talked about, what he looked like, how he functioned, how he interfaced. I mean, they would go so far as to replicate even how, they, how he ate. You understood you were going to be like him. And so Jesus, that's what he does. Very early on in the gospel accounts, like remember when Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19? They're out there casting nets, and, the, and he's, you know, they're working on their nets, and he, they're trying to be fishermen because that's all they've done. They've seen Jesus. They've interfaced with him. But then Jesus comes and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you remember they just kind of like they drop their nets. They just leave their stuff. Does that ever like what in the world is going on? What's going on is they understood explicitly Jesus was calling them to be a part of his traveling school. And that's why they'd set it all aside. This was part of their culture. And they, when they heard Jesus say, follow me, it clicked. They knew exactly what he's talking about. And so, friends, you and I, if we are going to make disciples like Jesus, we've got to establish a relationship with someone in which we can pour into them. So let me help you out. In the case of your kids, generally they have your last name. That is a huge clue. God wants you to invest in them. Whoa, you know, and I see everybody taking note. Oh, whoa, Smith. Oh, okay. All right. So that's right. They're your kids. God says, I want you to invest in them. But what about outside your family? How do you actually establish a relationship like this with someone that's not like related to you by blood? Well, it's like this. You say, hey, would you like to go out to lunch? And you like get to know someone and you'd say, hey, 
would you like to go over this book? There's a book that perhaps, perhaps a book like Master Plan of Evangelism or some book that has really been significant to you. Say, hey, would you like to go through this and just kind of talk it over? Or maybe you want to say is, you know, uh, hey, would you like to just get together and talk about some of like the, the key issues of life? Get together, see if you can kind of click, have a little chemistry. Okay, yeah, you're going to be sweating. That's all right. You're going to be fine. But you engage these people with the idea that, hey, let's talk about this article. Or I'm thinking, you know, you and I are on the same line of business. Let's talk about what it means to follow Christ as a business person or a professor or a mechanic or whatever it is, and you start a relationship, okay? And what you're doing is you've got to put yourself in a position that demands divine intervention, okay? When I say that, some of you are holding on to your seats. You're like, oh, man, this is, this is making me nervous. You mean Jesus is calling me to actually make disciples? I have to talk to someone? I've got to make an investment in someone? What if they realize that I'm not as mature as I come across? It's okay. He knows because he's going to do the work in you. And so what you do is you look to establish a relationship. If you're a lady, why don't you have them over tea? Go out to Panera. If you're a guy, brisket always works, okay? You know, like, whoa, we're eating brisket. This is okay. Whatever. You start and establish a relationship. Let me give you a third characteristic of you're going to make disciples like Jesus. You have got to be communicating with them. And that is what rabbis did. This is what Jesus did. There was instruction. And like a rabbi, what he would do is they would, rabbi, the rabbi teach the students, okay, they were called, a student was called a Talmud. A group of students, the ones that traveled with them, are called the Talmudin. Talmudin. And so that's what they did. They were sitting there listening to Jesus. They did so in silence, and then afterwards they'd ask him a bunch of questions. Like, why did you say that? You know, there's another rabbi, and he actually says this about this. How is it that you came to those conclusions? They'd ask him questions, and they'd interface and engage. And then what the rabbi do after a series of questions and discussion and his teaching, he'd actually just leave them. And at that point, then, the students would start interfacing and interacting with one another, talking about the things they'd learned. They came to a place where they actually had memorized what he was talking about. They came to a place of ownership because they had interfaced over the ideas of what he was talking about. And a rabbi would sometimes use riddles, stories, parables, proverbs. He'd throw it out there, and sometimes he didn't answer all their questions. Sometimes he'd just plant the seeds, and he'd walk away because he wanted his people, his students, to wrestle with these concepts. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He teaches, he communicates with his men. Like in Mark chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, remember that Jesus, he's going out and he spoke with many parables and he's speaking the word to them. And this is what he's doing out to the crowds, but his disciples are always listening so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He's telling them, and they would sometimes ask him like, hey, what did that mean about that last story? I, I totally missed it. That was probably one of their key questions. Help me understand that Jesus was always explaining these things. Why? Because that's how you develop people. You make these investments. You teach them. And so you're going like, Phew, well, what in the world do you talk about? Okay? What, what do you talk about when you actually start some sort of discipleship relationship with another person? Let me give you the four, just four major areas that, that I focus on. First, you just focused on their personal life. How are they really doing with God? How are they doing with life? Do they really understand their identity in Christ? Are they finding their significant strength, identity, security, and power in some sort of idol of this world 
or their circumstances or is in Jesus Christ. So you get to know them personally. You find out, how are they doing in their prayer life? Do they have one? Do they read the Word? Do they know how to read the Word? Do they know how to even interpret it? You find out where they're at. So you talk about their personal life. Then second, another major area is their family life. Okay? How are they doing with their spouse if they're married? Or how are they doing as a single if they're single? And the struggles that they face. If they got kids, how are you doing with investing in your children? Parents, how are, how are you doing with that? Grandparents, you look at their family. Then third category is career. Find out not only what they do, but how they're doing in it. Do they understand that God has equipped them to represent him in their workplace? How are they doing with the tough decisions and the stress? How are they doing with ethics? And you get to know them and you interface with their careers, whether they be a homemaker or a professor. And then finally, you talk with them about their ministry. How is it that they serve Christ? How is it that they are making disciples? They may have no idea what you're even talking about. So you start from there. And let me just tell you, you just tell them what you know. You be clear. Don't be overly wordy, okay? Don't put them to sleep with super long stories, okay? And, and you want to be illustrative from your own life, but you also want to be engaging. And let me just tell you something. When you are working and making disciples, you just tell them what you know. Very few people know how to ask good questions. Even when it's blatantly obvious, they should be asking a question like, how do you do this? Like their marriage is unraveling and they're just, well, I think everything's fine. Okay, what you do is you just tell them what you know. When you see things, you just start passing on truth to them. Which leads us to the fourth element if you're going to make disciples like Jesus did. And that is, you've got to be coaching them. It's not that you're just giving them ideas, sermons, parables, story. You're teaching truth. But you've got to come to a place where you are modeling it and you are helping them put this truth into play into their life. And that's what you do. And so these rabbis, they would always be giving their students, they would be giving them opportunities to put into practice what they were learning. For instance, they'd give them teaching assignments. Like, you go into the village, and you go and talk to these people. Like, what? Me? What? Yeah, huh? And you know why they do that? To find out what they really knew. And then they'd come back with a lot more questions. Like, oh, you know, this guy in the village, he asked me this question. Well, this lady was really smart. In about two minutes, she had me whipped into a frenzy. I don't even know the answers to these questions. Great. Because now you're hungry. Now we can talk. Now I can train you. And so that's what they do. And Jesus did the same thing. He'd send them out. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, the, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. And he says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, I want you to preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is Jesus doing? He's coaching them. He's sending them out to go and to do what he's asking them to do. Let me tell you, one of the biggest ways that you and I coach is the way that Jesus did it. He not only told them, but he modeled it for them. One of the things you cannot miss in the scriptures is the importance of doing the will of God. For Jesus, obedience to the will of the Father was paramount. And so when Jesus called his people to obey, they had a living picture of what that looked like. It looks like Jesus. Jesus always did the will of the Father. And so when he talked about obedience, they're like, whoa, to do it like Jesus did it. And by the way, 
If you have put obedience as an option, your spiritual life is going to be stunted. Because if you're going to follow him as Lord, you have to actually do as he said, because he's Lord, not you. And so when it comes to spiritual growth and disciple making, spiritual growth comes best by by close contact with a holy example. Yes, you can learn a lot from teaching, from sermons, um, from books, absolutely. But the best way people learn is close contact with a holy example. Remember when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus is saying, I epitomize what I'm speaking about. I own it. And that is what the students thought of their rabbi, that he actually lived out the scriptures that he was teaching them. And so they'd watch him. He was scripture come alive. Jesus says, I am the way. I own it. I embody my message. This is what I want you to look like. I want you to look mature and function like I do. So remember, like in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it happened that when Jesus was praying in a certain place, Jesus seemed to be always praying. He'd get up early in the morning. The guys were sleeping. And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Hey, Lord, would you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples? Jesus, we see you praying so much. Prayer must mean so much to you. And prayer doesn't mean so much to us. In fact, we're more prone to sleeping, which was a theme in their life instead of praying. But obviously prayer is important to you. Lord, would you teach us? You see, this is all part of coaching. And you see this pattern in the New Testament. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I also imitate Christ. You follow my pattern to the degree that I'm following the pattern that Jesus has left us. And so what Jesus did, he did CPR on his people. He cultivated their hearts so that, P, he could plant the seeds of truth, and then he reaped. He reaped the fruit in their lives as that seed took root in their life, began to grow and to flourish. And something else that rabbis did as they were coaching their, their men, and that is they gave them lots of examinations, lots of tests. Okay, So for instance, when he would actually go and send them out, these were tests. These were tests to find out what they had really learned. You remember when they were in a storm and Jesus was sleeping and they all thought they were going to lose their life? When, what they were doing when Jesus asked him, hey, where is your faith? That was an examination. And they failed. They were freaking out because they thought that, oh, God's not in charge and, and Jesus is asleep and we're going to die in here. And he's like, no. Where's your faith? Or remember when he said, I see you guys notice all the whole, the whole crowd of 5,000 men, not counting all the women and children, getting real hungry. Why don't you feed them? Oh, what? We, we, we can't. We, they stole a little kid's sack lunch, but they're like, we, this isn't going to work, Jesus. Come on. We can, do the math. We, this isn't going to work. Come on. You see, oh, this is an examination. I'll show you what I can do through you. You bring what little you got to me, and let's see what will happen. Remember when the disciples, this must have been a great scene, the little children were trying to come to Jesus. The disciples, using their full authority, were pushing the children away and rebuking them and scaring them, and I don't know what they were doing. They were trying to run the kids off. Remember? And Jesus got on them and said, Hey, you know what? I happen to like little children. Knock it off. And then he told them this. 
You know, you've got to become like one of them if you're going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. I like children. All of this was coaching, teaching, training. They realized that Jesus was calling them to build their life so that they would look like him. In fact, very early on in his ministry, in Luke chapter 6, remember he ends that parable, I mean, excuse me, that sermon, and says, everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man who is building a house who laid his foundation upon the rock. If we're going to make disciples, we bring people to maturity in Christ, where they're building their life upon him. Now, they were, Jesus wasn't interested in just disseminating spiritual information. He was interested in transformation. And so are we. We're not interested in creating smarter sinners. What we are interested in is that they are building their lives upon Jesus Christ. His men were not required to be smart. They were required to be loyal. Jesus even trained them in their failures. Remember when they couldn't cast out a demon? Like, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? Let me tell you, this only comes out through prayer and fasting. And that's what we do in personal disciple making. You've got to establish kind of a baseline of where they're at. You, first of all, you look at foundational needs. Like you look at where are they really at in terms of their understanding of the gospel and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Do they understand that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in you? Do they see their identity in Christ? Then you take, like, how are they doing with the word? How are they doing in prayer? What's the condition of their soul? Do they know how to confess sin? What is their knowledge of scripture? Don't be shocked when they're a Christian for quite a few years and they really know very little about the Bible. That's okay. We're going to take you where you're at and we're going to take you to deeper maturity. How, is it, how do they understand doctrines? Do they even know what doctrines are? What do they believe about God, hell, heaven, faith, eternity? Find out where they're at and you equip them when it comes to ministry. But not only are there foundational needs, but when you disciple people, there are going to be felt needs that are going to be glaring in their life. Felt needs like character issues, relational problems, um, something that's going on at work. You have an opportunity to step in and to help them pray through and process and interface how is it they're going to take the next steps and through Christ, they're going to overcome these things. And let me just tell you, just find some great resources. They're out there. After service today, we've got this book called Master Plan of Evangelism that actually lays out pretty much what I'm talking with you today. There's books on character, parenting, work. Say, let's go through this. Find out what the need is. Let's address it. They don't understand their identity in Christ. There's a book called Gospel that will really help you understand that. Let's go through this together. And let me give you the fifth one. Okay, if you do not do have this fifth characteristic, if this is not a reality for you, you're going to be completely short-term in your influence on the life of another person. And that is that you've got to care. You have to be caring for them. If you can't do this, you're going to be limited. If you know why Jesus was so very effective with people, is because they knew that he loved them. Remember the shortest verse in the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, or excuse me, John chapter 11, verse 35? Jesus wept. Remember that? You know, and theologians, they're like, why did Jesus weep? What's going on here? Why is he crying? What's making him so upset? After you go through all these high-blown theories, Jesus wept because Jesus cared. He loved him. He loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus' sisters. And if you and I are going to disciple like Jesus, 
We have to have the capacity to love. Remember John chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them fully, completely. Love was lived out in the life of Jesus. When he washed their feet, feet, Peter and the rest of the guys understood this is a living parable of what spiritual leadership looks like. Love being poured out. In fact, they saw love being poured out on the cross. They saw Jesus beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a wooden cross. At any time he could have come down, but he doesn't. Why? Because he loves his people and he knows that in order to redeem them, he, the perfect sacrifice, must pay the penalty for their sins. And when they looked at Jesus and they thought of the crucifixion he went through, they saw love personified. Friends, if you and I are going to disciple like Jesus, we've got to love people. They've got to know it. Very few people have anyone in their corner that's encouraging them, that's pouring, pulling for them, that's saying like, hey man, you're doing it, or showing, you how, showing them how God is at work in their life. They are defeated. If you have the ability to care, you can influence. In fact, if you can love people, you can lead them, but you will not lead them to death if you will not be able to love them. So how do you do this with guys? Maybe somebody like, man, love and guys, whoa, what, how do you do this? I'll make it real easy. One word. Respect. Respect is the language of males. Guys, you disrespect another guy, guess what you've got? You've got an enemy on your hands. Respect, though, is how you win hearts. You look them in the eye. You shake them in the hand. You go out of their, uh, your way to show an interest in them. When you do that, you have the ability to encourage them. That is how men operate. You have the opportunity to tell them and explain to them what a man of God is, someone who's abiding in Christ, who's rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, expecting God's greater reward. It happens when you've got the context of respect going on. And for women, for women, the language is love, that you are a safe, supportive, understanding, accepting friend that has the ability to show them how to take next steps spiritually, To handle situations biblically, not just emotionally. Not that you're just sympathetic, but that you're scripturally based, founded, grounded, mature, that you can help lead them. When we can care, we can lead. And if if we're going to be effective in disciple-making, let me just tell you, you can know as much as you want. You can be gung-ho, and I absolutely believe in the mission of Jesus. But if you will not or cannot love, you're going to be very short-term in your influence. And that leads us to the final characteristic, and that is that Jesus commissioned them. Really interesting, the relationship with a rabbi and a student always came to an ending point. It's not that they weren't friends always, but the time and the season of intensive education and training always came to an end when the rabbi sent them out and said, now you go do as I've done. You develop your own group of students. You've learned everything that I'm going to teach you. Now you go. And that is exactly what Jesus did. In fact, John chapter 15, verse 15, you might want to write that down. It says, Jesus said, no longer I call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I call you friends. You know what he's doing? He's saying, I'm getting ready to send you out. Everything I've, ta- I've learned, I'm passing on to you. 
And then when you come to Matthew chapter 28, where your Bible is open, this is the commissioning. I am sending you out. And by the way, this was the practice of the early church. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.2. Discipleship is much more organic than it is organizational. It's not getting people to go through six classes and, whoa, you're a mature disciple. No. It's like trees and children. It is ongoing development. It is making the investment. And God never calls us to do something he's not equipped us to do. And he has never asked us to do anything he does not empower us with his presence to do. I will do this. I know you're intimidated by my mission. I don't know right now. I'm praying for a revolution. And I know decisions are being made as you're even sitting there like, Are you serious? Jesus wants me to do this? I've never done that. No one has ever done that with me. This is the play that we're to be doing. And Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You abide me and I in you. Guess what? You will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you'll do nothing. I can do this through you. In fact, this is what I want you to be doing. I mean, think about it. In most churches, Christianity today, What I'm talking about is foreign. That is why we're talking about recovering Jesus' disciple-making mission. Basically how it works in most churches, you hire a pastor, he preaches, hopefully he shares his faith, and then some new people come into the church. And and if if the people are enthusiastic, okay, they're kind of like fans. But if they're not so enthusiastic, they're just kind of spectators. That is never what Jesus planned or intended. We are all to be involved in this. I mean, think about how much faster our churches would grow, how much healthier, how much stronger they would be if we actually took Jesus seriously and made these kind of investments in the lives of other people. That's what we are to be doing. That is the mission, by the way, of our church, to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ, loving God, investing in others, following his word, engaging our world. And friends, let me tell you, throughout our church, this is happening. People are making these kind of investments. People receiving this kind of training. But it must continue to grow. This is what we're called to do. Now let me just tell you, you can do it with your kids. You can find others in your church, in our community. I can tell you there are hundreds of young moms and young dads and young singles and college students that want this kind of investment. The question is, are we serious enough about our faith? And do we have faith enough that God could do this that we'll actually follow with what he said? I'll just tell you from my personal experience, I've been doing disciple making for many years now. I'll tell you, it is very rewarding. It is sometimes challenging, but it is always fulfilling what Jesus has called us to do. Let me just ask you, are you willing to make disciples? Let me tell you, people are God's Ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. In just a few minutes, we're going to break the huddle. And we're going to go and face a defense that is set up to destroy it. And let me tell you, the defense is winning. But no longer. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we are called to make disciples of the nations through the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord,
this is an amazing call that you've given us, and it is so far beyond us. It requires divine intervention. So, Lord, would you do your heart work in us? Would you bring about transformation? May we own this mission, and, Lord, through your Spirit, would we put it into practice? That means breaking through our comfort zones, doing things we've never done before, but doing things as you've always asked us to do. So, God, we're asking for great things, that you would bring a transformation and a revolution, starting here, going throughout the world. We plead and we'd ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.